Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, March 17th, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Christine's colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, our Washington commentary columnist, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Um, so first it was a bat. Now apparently it's a raccoon dog. Yes. Catherine Wu uh, of the Atlantic, fresh from spending three years trying to drive everyone insane with her COVID and health paranoia and some of the most hilariously over-the-top articles ever published about how she was going. And she was writing pieces about how she was going insane, which I think was pretty much indicated by the level and perspicacity of her prose, has a big exclusive out that the New York Times has jumped on and actually released to the world as breaking news, as though it's their story, but it's in fact Catherine Wu's story, about a new study that has not been published and that is uh, not been vetted uh, about how genetic material uh, taken from swabs of people at the Wuhan market beginning in January 2020 show some animal DNA in them. Uh, from raccoon dogs. First time I've ever heard of a raccoon dog, so you'll please forgive me because that sounds disgusting. I really don't like... I, I, dogs are cute, but I don't... The notion of the raccoon dog together is not, not very well, attractive. Well, if to you me. just look at the image, I just it's, it's not a dog. Okay. It, it's so a raccoon. Anyway, apparently at the Wuhan wet market, you can buy a raccoon dog and eat it, I guess is the... Is the uh, is what we're being told, and that maybe they sold a raccoon dog at the Wuhan wet market, and somebody ate it and got COVID, and then now COVID contains material from a raccoon dog. Okay, um, now we're not virologists. I just want to stipulate that we're not virologists. Generally speaking, you don't publish a study that, you know, publish results of a study that actually hasn't been vetted by anybody yet or published by anybody yet. Um, and uh, first major caveat I have to issue is that uh, Catherine Wu names three co-authors of the study. One of them is Christian Anderson. Christian Anderson's name is now well known to people who follow this stuff closely because it was he who submitted the article to Nature Medicine in February of 2020, asserting that uh, the it was improbable that there was a lab leak in Wuhan and that it was therefore an animal transmitted animal to human transmitted disease. And he is the author of the email in which he said he was prompted to write this this article by Anthony Fauci, thus contributing to the sense that it had become the consensus of the, uh, COVID public health response, even before there was a public response to COVID, to uh, to steer everybody away from the lab leak theory toward the animal transmission theory. So Christian Anderson, one of the three authors of this study that has not yet been published, is a person with a material interest in defending and promoting 
uh, the anti-lab leak theory, and therefore his paper needs to be taken with a grain of salt. I have no idea how good or bad the virologist he is, but even if he's a good virologist, he is a combatant in a war, and this is this is the return salvo after the kind of massive onslaught of the lab leak theory over the last uh, six weeks. Um, Christine, you noted one interesting, a- you know, aspect of this, which has to do with the timing of the swabs or the timing of the swabbing. Right. I mean, it, it, it sounds like it was, uh, early January, uh, 2020, there's been kind of the conventional wisdom is that the virus was likely already circulating in certainly in China. Um, we don't know for sure because the Chinese government has never been forthcoming about, about its own data or its own, um, knowledge of of when the virus started to spread. That's why it's called COVID-19, 2019. So the idea that swabs taken, you know, many months later might have it might have turned up in in wild animals in a wet market, it doesn't suggest that that was the source. We can't really pinpoint that. And I think what's also fascinating about the timing of this story, getting all this news, I got a breaking news alert from the New York Times overnight about this Atlantic story, is is the strenuousness with which mainstream media outlets really want to grasp onto something that proves the previous narrative, the narrative that they were most comfortable with, the one that allows them not to delve into some of the more perhaps uh, dangerous and nefarious ways in which the uh, Chinese Communist Party has tried to persuade the world that it really it, it wasn't their fault. So that that I that also struck me, but I don't think this data this doesn't really tell us anything new in terms of potential likelihood of whether it came from a lab or not. It's just a new um new uh, emphasis for a narrative that I think is is extremely comfortable for some people who don't want to question other potential likelihoods such as that it came from a lab. Um Robert Redfield, the head of the CDC under Trump told CNN uh, after his testimony uh, before the China committee a couple weeks ago um, that uh, the most likely estimate of when COVID broke out was September or October of 2019. So maybe the swabs say what they say. Maybe they don't. The fact is that the, that the, that doesn't, mean i i mean it there should have been more evidence of this why did they go to a bat first the article (laughs) as opposed to raccoon dog anyway go ahead sorry the article itself um in in the the times coverage of it reinforces all these doubts and caveats uh there's one part i'm going to read directly from says the jumbling together of genetic material from the virus and the animal does not prove that a raccoon dog itself was infected. And even if a raccoon dog had been infected, it would not be clear that the animal had spread the virus to people. Another animal could have passed the virus to people or someone infected with the virus could have spread the virus to a raccoon dog. Later on, toward the close of the article, it says Dr. Goldstein, too, cautioned that, quote, We don't have an infected animal, and we can't prove definitively that there was an infected animal at that stall. So what is this? I mean, this is this is there's a I have a frustration generally with 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 uh, like these data backed arguments turning the tides of, of, of the discussion, because they're really and this is the clearest case They're they're these studies are not. 
produced and and um, built up to clarify anything. Just the opposite. It's purely to obscure the question, so so you don't get to a clear answer. And that this is this is all just fog. It, this is saying we found some of this, we found some of that. It doesn't prove anything. It's not even a study. I mean, it's it's yeah. you know, I love in the Catherine Wu piece. There's a sentence again toward the end. Quote. Slam dunk evidence for a raccoon dog host or another animal could still emerge. <laughs> well, okay. No which one's means, explored the giraffe. <laughs> which the giraffe means I've, is- I've just read 1,500 words proving nothing. And uh, we missed my pangolin in there, you know, because first it was a bat, then it was yeah. the pangolin. Right. Uh, and now it's this raccoon dog, which is not a dog. I'll just insist on that. I mean, if, if those are my options, I'd prefer the pangolin. But the bottom line is, they don't have any clue, and this is just an this is an intervention in a political debate, not a okay. scientific one. Again, so I'm not a virologist. I don't understand how these how these things combine and recombine and everything like that. But um, if COVID comes here, gets here in uh, or, you know late January, early February, and these swabs were taken in China in January, shouldn't the raccoon dog DNA be showing up in people here. What about their swabs? Do we have their swabs? Can somebody check and see if the COVID that came here or to Italy, the two places where the outbreak manifested themselves in the winter of 2020, could somebody take a look before they report that it's, you know, a raccoon dog? Um, and I think it is that the, the important thing is that uh, Catherine Wu has a rooting interest in the uh, anti-lab leak theory, and Christian Anderson has a rooting interest in the anti-lab leak theory. And I think it's pretty clear from the behavior of the New York Times' news desk and what they think will be stimulating and exciting to their readership that they have a rooting interest in the anti-lab leak theory. I do not feel myself as though I have a rooting interest in I do not want or not want the Chinese to have been responsible for this. Uh, it is that the um, immense amount of pressure that was put on the conversation from the very beginning to deny this and to delete, uh, to silence people on social media who had the temerity to suggest that this was a plausible theory, maybe more plausible. I mean, plausible just simply as a matter of logic than the somebody ate a bat and now 7 million people are dead, which is essentially what we have here. Let's just make this clear. So the idea is some individual person ate an animal and 50 or 60 million people got a disease that spread out from that one person eating that one animal or they're doing gain of function research in a lab the lab is not particularly well run uh that a a a a version a virulent version of a coronavirus somehow is transmitted to a person or persons in that lab that just racks through their body and escapes through their pores or their whatever and then starts killing people What's the more plausible explanation for how a contagion would spread here? Like, why would the raccoon dog that you ate still be alive 
you know, or, obviously it wasn't a lot, whatever. I mean, why, why wouldn't it already have died if the, if this disease in its body was so insanely virulent that it would combine and recombine and then, you know, not only kill 7 million people, but like, you know, infect tens upon tens of millions. Well, some animals can, can have, can, can live with viruses that are fatal to other species, including humans. And, and there's also some speculation that maybe if, if, if it was the raccoon dog, maybe it's that there is some evidence that one of the scientists from the lab visited that market and there were birds, I guess, like housed in cages near the raccoon dog. Like there are all these details that suggest, uh, again, it, it reads to me like a, a real stretch, but there are possibilities. And because we're not conspiracy theorists, we would like to weigh all the possibilities, including a lab leak, including maybe it came from another species. Yeah. But the problem is you can't, as, as Matt said earlier, this is not about science. This is about politics now. And it's almost impossible to have a kind of rational, objective analysis of these new studies that are going to be coming out and 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 come to some conclusion here. I would say either way, whether it's the uh, animal in the wet market or the virology lab, uh, they got to clean up their act in Wuhan. I mean, things are running around all over the place. It's a mess in the in the wet market. Animals, birds, next to next to each other, and then in the in the virology lab too. You have very uh, unsafe protocols. You have uh, who knows what type of leak or what um, type of uh, measure was uh, violated in order for the virus to leave the confines of the laboratory. So again, that whatever it, whatever the cause the um you know the 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 first mover here is is china <laughs> and is is the government of china and whether it, it it is um imposing health and safety regulations in either wet markets or in virology labs and then once the virus emerges it it lied about it and covered it up until it spread to uh america italy and the world Okay, so let's talk about China uh, uh, a little bit more. By the way, the one detail I do want to mention, and this is we can slap and you know a parent a parental warning explicit lyrics uh, label on this this podcast if you don't like where I'm going with this. But there is the little <laughs> pregnant little detail uh, that perhaps the virus, uh, if if it it wasn't that the raccoon dog gave everybody COVID, it was maybe a human gave the raccoon dog covid south park did a whole special about this okay so how <laughs> how would the human give the raccoon dog covid south that's, park did maybe a you don't want to go there but i'm just this. like well that's an <laughs> interesting that. that's an interesting speculation to have in your article about this is that another purpose of the wet market is to supply um romantic partners <laughs> Uh, South Park did a whole episode. <laughs> like, okay, I'm sorry, I didn't. I haven't seen it. I'm too busy watching Family Guy because my son is now on a completest binge through Family Guy, which I have to say is hilarious. And I'm now totally going off field. Last night, season nine or season ten of Family Guy, there was an episode with Rush Limbaugh on it, where Brian the dog becomes obsessed with Rush Limbaugh and, and turns to the right and goes so far to the right. This was must have been made in 2010 or something like that. That Rush Limbaugh says, "Okay, that's enough. Like, I'm sorry, you don't really <laughs> believe what you're saying. You're just like, just it's terrible. It's sort of like where you had wished Rush had gone with Trump, but he didn't. Anyway, and it was Rush Limbaugh's. Can voice. I ask one question before we yes. move on? Though, what is he liking more, The Simpsons or, or Family Guy? 
Well, so he's watched all the Simpsons. Right. And, you know, basically after about season 25 of the Simpsons, the Simpsons just got weird. Yeah. It's not even funny anymore. It's just kind of these weird Fantasia. They don't, you know, they made 750 episodes. So I think he would probably say that he likes the first 10 or 11 seasons of the Simpsons more than Family Guy. I see. But I have to say, I was always kind of allergic to Seth MacFarlane. But I mean, this show is occasionally hilariously yeah. funny. No, I agree. Anyway, okay. So, but moving on to from the literally from the ridiculous to the not sublime at all, but deeply serious, um, comes the story that um, Xi Jinping is about to go take a trip to Moscow. His first, is it his first foreign trip? or his second foreign trip or something since COVID, something like that, having consolidated all his power and everything like that. Now I guess he can go leave the country and go do other things. Um, but uh, he's going to Moscow, apparently, and this, of course, f- f- uh, it comes on the heels of his uh, dramatic negotiation of a diplomatic rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Clearly, he is on the move uh asserting his place as the um superpower negotiator play- player he's now not just offering people money to allow chinese businesses and chinese uh, industrial firms to be building roads and paying for those roads and stuff like that he is now on the geopolitical stage in a very direct way what do we what do we think is going on here yeah i, I mean um this is a uh, uh we've known about it um there there were some previews uh that he might make this trip uh coming uh last week it would be i think his second trip i just looked that up he, he took a trip to uh, central asia um since the end of zero COVID, but now he's going to russia and uh this is a kind of reaffirmation of the partnership the no so-called no limits partnership that uh xi jinping and vladimir putin struck prior to uh the invasion of ukraine on february 24th 2022 um a couple things one is uh we don't know what's going to emerge from this meeting uh and whether it, the meeting is a prelude to uh uh, a broader um, material support to Russia uh, from China. We're picking up some hints that some type of lethal aid is kind of trickling to Russia, but um, she hasn't opened up the floodgates yet, and he may at the end of this trip. The second thing that struck me is when we first heard that this trip might happen last week, some were speculating that she might also visit Zelensky in Kiev. And these, this reporting today, Friday, March 17th, leaves all that out. <laughs> so <laughs> that would be a sign that uh, she she's so-called uh, you know peace proposal to end the war in Ukraine was just a propaganda uh, tactic. And in fact, this is more about um, uh, bolstering the uh, Russo-Chinese alliance. I will say, too, um, all throughout this week, China, Russia, and Iran have been conducting naval exercises in the Gulf of Oman. Again, another example of this emerging axis. Uh, China is the center, Russia is the attack dog, and Iran is increasingly a junior, um, an active junior partner in an autocratic alliance that is challenging the West. 
Yeah, I was struck to, to read that Xi and Putin have met 39 times since she became premier. That's a lot. That's a lot of meetings between between heads of state. And uh, uh, and also, Xi is really the only leader to whom Putin expresses public deference. You know, he's he's otherwise very much like I'm, you know, king of the universe. And so that that is also worrisome. So, yeah, I I, I mean, I'm curious because I think there's my suspicion is there's going to be some sort of product at, at the outcome of this uh, uh, meeting. You know, there's a, there's there's going to be a, a joint statement um, and but it's going to be something substantive it's not it's it's not it's going to be something at least a little beyond we reaffirm our close ties um and i i'm i don't know what that something is and but i'm i'm concerned that the u.s is not going to respond in a way that doesn't make it look flat-footed which i think is kind of what's been happening all along the way when matt talks about um there was talk of of she uh a meeting with Zelensky. So there is still talk of Xi um, speaking on the phone with Zelensky and the U S response to this. I think it might've been John Kirby is that, Oh, well this, that's good. We, we encourage that. We want that because maybe he'll get a fuller understanding of, of the war and be less inclined to give uh, Russia military support. He did. China doesn't need a fuller un- picture of the war. They don't. It's not like, oh, I didn't realize that there's tr- tragedy uh, and and mass death happening on the on uh, in in Ukraine. You know that it's such a silly, um, unworldly, unworldly comment on the part of the U.S. here. Okay, so there are two really terrible possibilities. One of which is that they mean what they're saying, and the other is that they don't mean what they're saying, and that this is the spin. That they're coming up with and we have a secondary example of that in tony blinken's response to the brokering of the iran saudi uh exchange of ambassadors thing which is you know anything that reduces tensions is good um again if he believes that that's terrible i don't think he believes that they're just trying to come up with some face-saving thing to as they try to construct a policy that deals with the fact that G is now becoming um, an open rival in world geopolitics in a way that China, to be honest, really has not been before. China's game has been to seize market share in places all of it. So the belt and road strategy, which is what I was referring to earlier, where they basically go in and say, we're going to let, let us build you highways and things like that. Let, let us loan you the money so that we can build the roads that you need and create things. And you'll be dependent on us and we'll have you on the hook to pay us back. And anything that you need to fix these roads, you're going to come to us and your people are going to like us because we're modernizing your economies in these, you know, third world countries. That's a very interesting strategy, um, but it was not, and it's sort of an interesting, it's like colonialism backwards. It's like, we're going to come in and do all this stuff for you. And then you'll know 10, 15 years from now that we basically own you and control you. And we can cut you off at a moment's notice and you'll do what we say, um, as opposed to colonialism, which is going and you take over a place and then you modernize it after you take political charge of it. Um, 
But that's all economic, mostly, even if it has down the road a geopolitical component. Here we have China moving into the realm. The only other country that really filled this place as an antagonist to the United States in this regard was the Soviet Union, where they're offering a different model. They are they have a different aim. They have different interests. They have different ideological predilections. And um and we are going to be challenged to figure out how on earth to deal with this. And the problem, the temptation for the Biden people, and even for Trump people or DeSantis people or whoever, depending on where we are in a couple of years, despite the Republican Party's increasing it, hostility toward China, will be to say, it's your model that we we're, we are facing you down, not just because you're crowding us and threatening us, but because you are exporting things that we think are bad. Your economic philosophy is bad. Your form of governance is bad. Your support for totality, you know, authoritarian and totalitarians is bad. And without that component, and without this kind of sentimental, oh, it's so good to lessen tensions in places thing, uh, we will have no case to make against the Chinese, except a very good case that they poisoned the earth with COVID. But, you know, we're already like that's already starting to be in the rearview mirror. You know, it's uh, interesting if you just kind of take it globally. Um, earlier this week, Biden was on the West Coast and he was celebrating the AUKUS deal, our supply of uh, nuclear submarines to Australia and um, the British Prime Minister uh, Rishi Sunak was uh, also present. And so there you have an example of America uh, taking action in order to bolster an alliance and uh, provide military aid to one of our longtime allies um, to hedge against the rise of China in the Indo-Pacific. So that, so in that theater, you see America actually taking action uh, and trying to strengthen our position. But in the Middle East, uh, we have this kind of uh, 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 passive stance where we're saying, ah, sure, you know, if China wants to broker this deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, that's fine with us. Uh, and, you know, um, uh, we're, we're not really doing much in the Middle East, and uh, but Bibi shouldn't push through that judicial reform, whatever. And, you know, if the Iranians want to come back to the table, uh, we're always willing to talk about their nuclear program. So that's the Middle East, where meanwhile, China, Russia, and Iran are <laughs> conducting military exercises and China is trying to broker this deal between Saudi and Iran, which is aimed at the American negotiated Abraham Accords, right? And so, so that's the Middle East. And then finally in Ukraine, okay, what's happening in Ukraine? Well, she is on his way to Putin. We have the possibility that they may amp up their, their supply of lethal aid to, to Putin. And meanwhile, uh, America is just standing back while Poland and Slovakia say we're going to start. They're going to start sending jets. In their case, MiG 29s. But we're still having a, a, a debate and deterring ourselves by saying we're not going to supply the F 16s. Uh, uh, can I add one other global point 
to the strategy, which is that um, when we look at in Chinese investment in Africa, in particular, 43 billion in direct investment, that's not just an economic strategy for them. And we've treated it, that, pretty much treated it as if it's just an economic strategy, but they are they are repositioning themselves globally. And I think also, you know, in, in institutions like the UN, this will be helpful to them down the line. It's not just resource exploitation. It's not just, um, you know, trying to play the West, Western resources off of African resources. They are they are investing in Africa in a way that we have not in the West and in a way that I think down the line will have political and strategic repercussions when when the West tries to bring any sort of pressure to bear on on China and its allies, because they will have new allies that aren't going to listen to us because we haven't done anything for them. So I think I mean, that again, long term thinking the Chinese strategy is very much like a hundred year strategy. And, and, and certainly in our uh, political administrations, they tend to look five or 10 years ahead. Abe, something occurs to me listening to Matt's peroration, which is um, Poland and Slovakia sending aircraft, uh, Trump and DeSantis saying NATO and NATO should do more. NATO should do more. NATO should do more. So NATO is now apparently going to do more, right? Um, how is this different from leading from behind? Like we now have the Republican Party effectively adopting the idea that we should lead from behind. Sure, we want Ukraine to prevail in this war to the extent possible. They 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 acknowledge. Um, but uh, we're we're spending too much. We're doing too much. It's not really our national interest. Let somebody else do it. Um, now somebody else is do. Now somebody else is following their lead. Is doing it. Uh, are they going to turn more positive toward the U- Ukraine conflict now that Poland and Slovakia are going to be supplying aircraft? Or are they going to continue to... Or or I'm just saying that we have this weirdness, which is that the the Republican assault on Obama's foreign policy was, you know, the Obama official saying we're leading from behind uh, in an interview in The New Yorker in, in 2010 or 2011 in Libya. And here we are now. While the leading power in the world aside from the united states is now uh, uh, may be definitively aligning itself with russia at a critical moment to show its support as the spring offensive and counteroffensive against ukraine or in support of ukraine starts i think it's a brilliant point it is it is totally leading from behind and it's in response to the same supposed uh, uh sort of bad guys which are the neocons, you know, it's like this is this is the this was Obama was the the anti Iraq war, anti Bush, anti neocon foreign policy guy. We're no longer going to go into places with big ideas and be bold and do things and 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 sort of you know lead these coalitions and 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 that was the argument and um, the 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 neo-isolationist right has the same version of the bad guys um they they yet somehow they include obama in this right because it's it's the it's the uniparty foreign policy blob so he's yeah. so so he's gotten lumped into it the, the difference is um that they haven't said the the idiotic statement lead from behind right which which the the moment it it, it escaped uh an obama administration's uh, officials' lips became, you know, the, the source of, of of justifiable mockery. Can I can I make a point too about NATO and what the Poland's actions? And I think are very important. You know, 
Biden has spent so much time trying to keep the alliance together. For him, one of the reasons he is supporting Ukraine is to strengthen the NATO alliance. And he wants everyone on the same page. And in fact, in the past, that's why he has dithered in terms of some weapon supplies, most recently, the uh, kerfuffle over supplying the tanks uh, to Ukraine. And Germany, of course, was hesitant. And eventually, everybody got into alignment. And, uh, you know, Ukraine might see the tanks, I don't know, uh, a year from now or something. Um, here, Poland I mean, Poland actually has a sense of what its vital national interests are, and it understands the stakes, and it will take action. And it's doesn't it's not waiting for Biden. And so you have the because we are leading from behind here, and it's not just it's not the Republicans, you know, yet because the Republicans are right. It's Biden. <laughs> you know, Biden is uh, now creating a situation where you know Poland can just. They're they're going to say, well, we're going to give you the weapons. And what is to stop Russia from in in response now saying, well, look, there's a divide between the alliance. And maybe if I antagonize Poland more, uh, we can start splitting the alliance. Now, I don't he might not do that because he doesn't want to mess with Poland. Right. <laughs> you know, he doesn't he doesn't want NATO drawn into this war because he's going to lose it. Um, but it does. It's 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 a consequence of Biden's passive aggressive approach to supplying Ukraine the tools it needs to fight back this unprovoked aggression. Um, you know, uh, since I'm uh, citing, I'm some, somehow comparing uh, uh, Trump's views on foreign policy with um, Barack Obama's, I want to go back and uh, quote something that Trump said yesterday that now associates him with the foreign policy of or the policies of Jimmy Carter. So we now have Obama and Jimmy Carter and, and, and Trump. Trump said... Uh, the greatest threat to Western civilization today is not Russia. It's probably more than anything else ourselves. So uh, he is now Christopher Lash, 2023. Christopher Lash's book. Uh, Culture of Narcissism. Culture of Narcissism. Thank you. Was the great influence on the famous Malay speech that um, that uh, became the beloved text of the NatCon SoCon right a couple of weeks ago when people were writing with the pre-obituaries of, of Jimmy Carter, who is amazingly hanging on in hospice at the age of, 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 of 98, like he's got a clear will to live. Um, and, and so now Trump is, you know, we're killing ourselves. Russia is not killing us. We're killing ourselves. And as is true of Trump statements, from time immemorial, there is enough of a kernel of truth in what he is saying that you can't just say, oh, you hate America and you're terrible. Like a lot of us think that there's a lot of there's a lot there's a lot of self-destructiveness um, uh, and even sort of a suicidal ideation going on inside the, the West uh, that needs to be combated. Um but I just think like this is more more of a mark that this idea that you know Trump and you know is is fighting zombie Reaganism and zombie Reaganism is the problem. He's not fighting zombie Reaganism. He's fighting Reaganism. He's actually fighting the the set of ideas that uh, the Republican Party, as Matt details in his book very painstakingly and with great difficulty and halting the arguments and all of that kind of assembled into a 
fusionist coalition over the space of 40 years that Reagan was at the end of, not at the beginning of. And Trump is now going and pulling it up by the root. And that's the question of whether DeSantis is going to follow him down that road. I think there's, there's another point I just want to jump back to to Xi's visit here. Um, we've talked about this popular idea among multitude of elements on the right these days that the fight in Ukraine is, among other things, a distraction um, and and a dangerous nuisance because the real fight is with China. What does Xi's visit visit tell you about that argument? This is very much Beijing's fight. They are, this is this is an exceptional trip for him. This is not this is not something that is that is any that that is connected to any anything else in in sort of in China's foreign policy approach. This is very much their fight. This is our taking the fight to. Beijing via Moscow. Right. right. Let me take a pause and talk to everybody about our advertiser today, Bambi. Because uh, as I've been telling you, you know, when you're running a business, you got employees can create all kinds of headaches. And aside from also being people who make your business possible and may need some help, uh, dealing with state regulations and difficulties uh, th- therein and d- deserve and require the support that you can provide them uh, when you run a small business. And you better talk to Bambi, both for your sake and the sake of your employees, to provide you with a dedicated HR manager that starting at just $99 a month, available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly, Team members reach peak performance and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations across all 50 states. Bambi's HR autopilot allows you to automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. And on staff, HR manager can easily cost 80 grand a year. Bambi starts $99 per month. So schedule your free conversation today. To see how much Bambi can take off your plate, go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E.com, Bambi.com, type in Commentary Magazine. Matt, um, moving on to uh, the, you know, uh, potential, uh, I don't know, the uh, rot in our own economy or the, the danger of a a, a terrible implosion uh, inside our own economy. Uh, you have a column today in the uh, Washington Free Beacon about the ongoing efforts of the Biden people to minimize the impact, meaning uh, not only of the bank collapses or the shoring up of the banks uh, that has followed the bank collapses. Um, uh, they're not only like trying to minimize it, they're also trying to get praise for themselves for doing it, and then trying to redefine words like bailout to save themselves from political fallout. Right. Yeah, I, I wrote a column uh, really responding to Janet Yellen's uh, testimony before the Senate Finance Committee uh, on March 16th. And uh, Yellen um, uh, said a couple things worthy note. The first was, you know, she wanted to reassure the public that the banking system is totally fine and whenever I hear people in positions of authority assure us that everything is totally fine, um, I start worrying that things are actually completely wrong and headed in the wrong direction. 
And the second thing, it was interesting. I, she was asked by, I think it was um, Senator Lankford, asked her, you know, um, so would you use this uh, bailout, the backstop, right? The backstop of deposits, um, unlimited backstop of deposits, which it, it overturns the actual legislative uh, limit of insured deposits, which previously before last weekend was $250,000. Um, would you do this for the bank uh, in Kansas? And she said, no, not necessarily. We're only going to do it for systemically important financial institutions, which raises the question, well, I guess she decides who's what's what institution is systemically important or not, because um, actually prior to last weekend, no one considered Silicon Valley Bank systemically important, but then suddenly it was. Um, finally, I'll say that uh, uh, one of the arguments in my piece is uh, Biden and Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and Yellen have been searching for the soft landing scenario where somehow Fed uh, Chair Powell will be able to raise interest rates just delicately enough that we will both restore price stability in the economy, that is to say, get rid of inflation and avoid a recession. And for me, the lesson of the past week is there will be no soft landing. <laughs> that you're either going to have a situation where um, interest rates go up enough that kind of the, uh, the the after effects, the hangover of 20 years of zero interest rates and low interest rates set in, and that means financial instability and recession, or you'll have a situation where what's happened in the markets over the past week spooks the Fed into pausing or even reducing interest rates, which means we'll have more of the same, more inflation, more kind of rolling instability, and an economy that uh, the American people are very much displeased with. Um, you know, in terms of interest rates and explainers about interest rates and why we don't need really, for oddly enough, there isn't a lot of uh, movement in the world of uh, elite media coverage that says what the hell was this bank silicon valley bank doing like when enron went belly up the entire it was like a it was like a posse lynch mob out to kill anybody and everybody who worked for enron and here we have this bank that was so horribly mismanaged that it had placed you know its entire like reserve into these long long-term uh, low interest rate um, bonds and didn't start unwinding their position in them or strengthening other positions when interest rates started to go up. And meanwhile, you know, the CEO is living in Hawaii and the, and the, and the CFO is living in uh, Florida and they're not together and they, they everyone's working from home and, you know, policy isn't changing or anything like that. You would think, given everything that's going on, that there would be this kind of like plutocrat, go at that, you know, go kill them. So why don't they? Well, this is where, why there is this idea that's being spread that, you know, wokeness is what did in the Silicon Valley Bank. It's not wokeness. If you drew a Venn diagram between the largest donors in the state of California to the Democratic Party, its causes, and the Biden 
uh, political campaign in 2020 and depositors at the Silicon Valley Bank. There are plenty of depositors at the bank who are not donors, uh, probably, but I would say that you have, you know, 90% of the largest givers in California are in that bank. And somehow that fact transmits itself through the, I don't know, uh, Jungian ether to create a world in which you don't really talk about how they did this to themselves, their depositors, and to us. But here's how the New York Times put it in its explainer. Low rates were meant to last. Without them, finance is in for a rough ride. The subhead economists expected inflation and rates to stay low for years. With Silicon Valley Bank's implosion, Wall Street is starting to reckon with how wrong that prediction has proved. As Matt, you alluded to, we have had low interest, historically low interest rates for a generation. I mean, I could just tell my own story. I got a loan in 2000, a mortgage to buy an apartment. Uh, my my interest rate in uh, March of 2000 was 8.25% fixed over 30 years. Four years later, I sold that apartment, bought another one. I had a five-year adjustable rate mortgage at four that adjusted itself downward over time before I had to before I refinanced it again into a 30-year fix below three. So why am I telling this story? It's 20 years that we've had low interest rates. And then as my friend David Bonson put it, it's a like 11, 12, 13 years since we've had no interest rates, not low interest rates. The Fed is giving free money away to people with no expectation that they need to pay it back over time at any return. And for the coverage of this to say, look, you can't blame them. They thought interest rates were going to be low for a long time. They were low for a long time. All kinds of decisions were made about this. But beginning in the summer of 2021, when interest rates began to spike, any rational person on earth knew that at one point or other, the Fed was going to have to start jacking up those rates and that the the prudent and salient thing to do was to get yourself out of long-term in, in investments in bonds that were providing no return. Why aren't they getting their hats handed to them? Why is public opinion in the elite, which is, which you know, so we're going to get this exactly like 2008. They're all going to defend each other. Look, what could you do? Uh, Silicon Valley Bank and these other banks. Look, they were just, you know, and the response is going to be a populist response from below. And as I keep saying about 2008 and all, you don't know what that populist response's political impact is going to be, where it goes, what effect it's going to have. If I'm right that Trump was the ultimate result of the 2008 financial meltdown, I'm not saying Trump will be the result next year, because, again, you don't know where it's going to go. But there's got to be a reckoning. If if enough people feel pain from this. If not, I don't know. Different. Okay, Yellen said, no, you know, we're only going to bail out these banks. Interestingly enough, these banks that are systemically important to the economy also happen to jibe with our general ideological and political predilections. That's a pretty easy case to make if you are a 
a politician attempting to explain but you most know, why people don't know or better. care who janet yellen is i mean i think i'm not that's saying actually... yellen i'm, I'm well, saying i mean they're going to feel it in the form of a recession i mean that i mean that's kind of my point pinning in my, blame for in recession. my column yeah. i mean yeah. Yeah. Um, any way you look at this a recession is 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 at the tail end yeah i mean it's because one if if the fed does nothing um, that means inflation is going to continue. And we just know from public opinion, since the inflation appeared in the spring of 2021, Americans' standard of living has declined and Americans' perceptions of the economy have plunged. For most people, if you ask them, is the American economy in a recession? They've been saying so for two years, right? Um, what we haven't seen is it in the employment market, right? And, in, and jobs are still running hot. We had that report out last week, which showed that it was above expectations. The The trigger would be, one, a, a, a banking collapse, um, which this the Silicon Valley Bank could be the arbinger of, or two, um, it, it, there's the Fed continues to increase rates um, in order to combat the inflation. And then that the typical response to higher rates uh, is a recession. So that's when people start feeling it. Either they're going to, they're going to, their banks are going to collapse or there's going to be this pick and choosing um, uh, by Janet Yellen of, well, we're going to backstop this bank's deposits, but we're not going to backstop the, the regional bank in Ohio um, well, there certainly will be political backlash from that, or we'll just have a recession and unemployment's going to rise, and there's going to be political consequences to that as well. So uh, the the Biden administration, I mean, it's fascinating. You know, they said the inflation would be temporary; it wasn't. Well, now they're saying, "Oh, don't worry, everything's fine." Okay, you know, <laughs> your most authoritative spokeswoman is Janet Yellen, who you know, uh, she's an academic. She doesn't really. She's a She's a distinguished economist. She was the chairwoman of the Federal Reserve. But sh- does she really know what's going on in these businesses? Well, and this is this is actually where I think, to Abe's point, this is where people can be made to understand that they're feeling something that for which there's a theme. And though there is one really strong theme throughout the Biden administration's um, uh, tenure so far when it comes to economic pain that Americans are feeling. And that's to say, you're not feeling what you're feeling. And that denial of their pain, actually, we we thought would lead to more of a red wave had we not had the kind of Trump crazy candidates out there. But that is still present among a lot of Americans who are still trying to balance their budgets and live week to week on paychecks and still paying more for groceries than they need to. That pain should not be denied. And if if they start to see, you know, if there's more bank fares, more instability, more general chaos in the financial system, being told, as Matt says, nothing to see here, it's all fine. They're not going to buy that. We've heard this story many times. And he doesn't have a positive economic message. He has these discrete, you know, victory laps he takes, you know, the Chips Act, this, that, infrastructure, but he has not yet had a thread that goes all the way through that addresses those fears and those really you know, painful economic choices. Okay. So you have the choice to support some banks, but not others. In theory, we don't actually know because that, that would actually probably in macroeconomic terms be better than the alternative, which would be that the that the Biden people realize that they're playing with political fire and basically they and the Fed decide to back all banks and then deposit insurance no longer exists. And and the I don't even think you could call it moral hazard at that point. What would what would the word be, you know, beyond hazard? I mean, it's more it's a moral uh, it's a moral catastrophe 
because uh, no 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 financial decision it remains the responsibility of the person who was making that decision. So you have that either they back everything or they don't. So let's say they don't. Let's say they follow the Yellen strategy. Take that. You take the um, student loan uh, debt forgiveness, and then you take the uh, woke stuff that is in the CHIPS Act and stuff like that. And what's the line that you can run on against Biden? He is using the federal cash machine to reward his voters, period. And these are his people. He's trying to win them to his side. He's paying off Silicon Valley with, you know, money that event is supposedly not a, not the government's money, but in the end, you know, it the government ends up being the final guarantor of all this anyway. So he's paying them off, but not you. He's paying off everybody who went to college foolishly and took loans, but not you, uh, you know, person in East Palestine, Ohio. And he's using this supposed effort to rebuild American manufacturing to impose a whole new set of woke regulations on the businesses that are supposed to do that, that have nothing to do with the effort to actually rebuild manufacturing in the United States. I say that's pretty good. That is a pretty good, you need three or four different things to make the case that this is a systematic strategy on the part of Democrats. Uh, And it starts to look like a systematic strategy on the part of Democrats, which so that even makes it better. I don't think it is. You do need a Republican who can articulate every single aspect of that and not just the woke stuff. Or a populist Democrat. Sure. Yes. Like there's look, you're not going to let one of those out. of I know. I know there's a five percent chance Biden (laughs) doesn't win the nomination. But but this is something could move very fast. And if things look really bad in July, if banks fail all over the place, this is happening, that's happening, interest rates are going up and all that, you really think that there won't be a challenge to him if his numbers plunge into the mid-30s because we're just in this kind of chaos? And remember, I don't know, we, I don't, yeah. we have the debt ceiling fight coming up exactly yeah. around that time. Right. And that, I think, will introduce another element of instability into the financial system. Um, and uh, also... Republicans are in no mood for bailouts. I mean, they didn't want to have the first bailout back in 2008. And that was, I compare it in my comments, TARP, the Troubled Assets Recovery Program, that was legislation, you know, and it it was also global. Um, In this case, the the government just decided to do this. (laughs) You know, that was in Congress. And so what, what little appetite there was for the TARP bailout has been diminished in the decades since and is especially diminished after what happened last weekend. So, you know, that whole idea is, uh, well, we've trust that Republicans, you know, won't cut off their nose to spite their face. Uh, maybe they will. Just otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they will. So um, the, the, it's a, it's a, it's a very unstable situation. Yeah. And an unpredictable one. I, I think unpredictable is the key. I mean, I really do think that the problem here is that Yellen doesn't know what the future holds. Yellen doesn't know what the balance sheets of hundreds of banks hold. We don't know what banks across the world are facing in terms of whether they invested excessively in low yield 
bonds to protect their deposits. And you could see a cascade elsewhere that then reverberates here because we are, of course, globally interconnected and all of that. And it's a it's a time of great peril. And ultimately, yeah, it's not just that the Republicans could find themselves, you know, using the debt ceiling fight to say no more, no, you know, stop right here. And then ordinarily you would say, well, this is crazy. You have to, you, we've agreed as a country, we took on this debt. We have contractual obligations to pay it using, using our, our modalities to do that. And, you know, th- this is the end of America as the, you know, world guarantor of the economy or whatever. And on the other hand, uh, Biden seems to be a person almost without restraint when it comes to talking about spending money that he doesn't have and that is not his and taking a stand against that at some point or other. I don't think it's politically stupid. Like you could, the same people who say to you, you know what, you really have to give the guarantee the every depositor at the Silicon Valley bank, all their money, no matter what, are the ones who are going to be saying, this is reckless and irresponsible not to raise the debt ceiling. They're going to be compromised as, you know, neutral arbiters of our economic, of, of our economic requirements. You know, they supported $6 trillion of new spending that led to inflation. And they supported these bailouts that are going to basically fall uh, you know, very unequally uh, to the benefit of a very specific class of people. Disparate impact bailout <laughs> edition. Oh boy. And we <laughs> disparate impact. We need our equity bailout. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we were going to do some, it's we're, we're, we're an hour in here. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell, ask everybody to have a really wonderful weekend. We'll be back on Monday for Abe Christine and Matt. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. Mm-hmm.